this week on the Sport Blokes. This week, Nathan and I discuss our all-time favourite dunks. Cristiano Ronaldo is the new pride of South African football, apparently. The roof, <laughs> the roof, the roof is on fire in the BBL, and an incident that'll make us all say bloody hell. It sure will. Let's go. It's 2.18 in Queensland on the 21st of January 2023. That's where you are, Stewie. I'm here in Perth. It's just after midday. Here we are for part two. Indeed. It's supposed to be sunny Queensland and it feels like the bloody windows are about to get blown in. There's that much wind up on this ridiculously high 21st floor building. It's just, ugh. it's not the same, mate. I miss being at home. <laughs> and it's already gone up a few degrees. It was 36 when we started recording a couple of hours ago and it's now edging towards 40 here in Perth. So there you go. Oh, feels about 3.6 here. Anyway, mate, you've won the coin toss. You're kicking to the lock at end. What have you got for the opening bounce? <laughs> yes, well, uh, quite a bit, actually. Some quick hits and a bit of home and away. So let's start with home first. Former number six overall pick from the 2019 AFL draft, Fisher McKay has hung up the boots after just 10 games with the Adelaide Crows. I quote, Unfortunately, I have lost a lot of the enjoyment and desire to improve, which is required to make it at the top level. Oh, imagine blowing a number six pick on that. Yeah, I don't know. To be honest, though, good on him for pulling the pin and not just hanging around when his heart wasn't in it, though. I actually admire that a little bit. I don't disagree with you in terms of, like, I admire his decision to do that. I just, I'm not sure whether that level of honesty is that good. I just, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. There's plenty of blokes that are half-assing it and still cashing checks. So, yeah, if your heart's not in it, I understand. But, yeah, not great for Crows fans. <laughs> Speaking no, of things not, not good for fans, I've got a couple of others here. The NRL is in collective bargaining problems. Could there be a strike? That's a bit of a worry. And then the Melbourne Victory's penalties have been handed down. So, obviously, a few episodes ago, we talked about that horrible fall from grace that the A-League faced after barely having a chance to look at the wave after the World Cup, let alone ride it. They've been handed a record $550,000 in sanctions for bringing the game into disrepute. They've also been handed a suspended 10-point deduction that may be triggered for each instance of serious supporter misconduct during this season and the next three seasons. So... That's fairly strong. And the match which was abandoned... Now, I find this a bit weird and interesting. I'd be interested to hear your take on it. So the match was abandoned after 22 minutes. They're going to replay it in April from the 22nd minute with the scoreline 1-0 in City's favour. What do you reckon? Should they have just cancelled that one or do you think it's something that should be played out? I mean, I can see both sides there. But it is tricky. I mean, are the same players all going to be available we probably go back, I guess, to some of those NBA games where there have been appeals, but there have been trades that have happened in the in the interim and guys have played for both teams. So it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I, I don't mind the idea of them basically just calling it 1-0 full-time, call it, what, 68 minutes early. No, no issues. So to me, it looks like they've decided to not penalise the players because it wasn't their fault. So the fans have been penalised and it's a pretty harsh penalty. The club's been penalised but the players still get to play out the match. So I think that's interesting, but I don't know. I think I would have handed that one to City 1-0. I would have probably done the same. The other thing I do find kind of interesting is this whole 10-point suspended sentence. I mean, if you're an opposition fan, why wouldn't you just dress up in their gear and jump on the field and trigger it? Well, apart from the sanctions you'd face personally, it's a really good point. It's a really good point. It would take an idiot and someone gutsy to do it, but it's not beyond people, is it? I mean, you imagine now you just basically start a GoFundMe and people will pay the fines anyway. 
So obviously you and I aren't massive soccer fans, but the story is interesting and I wanted to learn a little bit more. So I listened to some podcasts over the week. Shout out to the A-League Couch Critics. The poor buggers. So they had an episode called, Is This the A-League's Darkest Day? Straight after the grand final decision. And then literally a day or two later, the next episode was called, Is This Rock Bottom? <laughs> so you do feel for <laughs> A-League fans. And also shout out to For Vuck's Sake as well, a uh, Melbourne Victory podcast. I got some interesting information. <laughs> Yeah, it that's was, a great name. It is a great name. And it was a good listen too. And really interesting to hear passionate fans. And it's always the poor fans that get affected. And it's always a small group that ruins it for everyone. So, yeah. Moving to the away portion of my opening bounce. And we'll stick with soccer. So, Cristiano Ronaldo recently signed with the Saudi Arabian team Al Hasir Football Club out of Riyadh. Did you hear about that one? Him signing? Yeah. Yeah, I heard about him signing. He's actually played a friendly against uh, Lionel Messi's Paris Saint-Germain as well. Got punched in the face by one of the goalies by mistake, not intentionally, and uh, scored a couple of goals in a 5-4 win. Did you hear about his initial press conference, Shui? I didn't hear about the press conference, though, no. Get this. He expressed his excitement to arrive in South Africa. Oh, that's close. That's, they, they definitely, I mean, <laughs> Saudi apart Arabia, from them- South Africa, different yeah, continent. I mean, apart- Apart from them speaking speaking a different language, having a different currency, having a completely different set of religious beliefs and being in a different continent, they're practically the same place. Yeah, they're, they're almost identical. The fact yeah. that you're earning 200 million quid, you know, who cares if you don't even know the right country? It's not a big deal. <laughs> Do you know what it takes me back to? What was it? The um, I can't remember who it was. It was one of the one of the Simpsons episodes, basically. And I'm sure one of the guys comes in and he's like, Good evening, Springton. Oh, yes. Yeah. Spinal Tap. Yeah. <laughs> Not Spinal Tap. Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, the NHL's had a similar issue to the NRL with pride jerseys. So, Philadelphia Flyers' Ivan Provorov skipped the warm-ups against the Anaheim Ducks, refusing to wear a Pride Night jersey or use sticks wrapped in rainbow tape, while Provorov cited that he was staying true to his self and his religion the athletic writer Charlie O'Connor. Now, when I say the athletic, I don't mean well, he might be athletic. I don't actually know, but I mean the media organization, the athletic. The athletic writer Charlie O'Connor said it contradicted the entire message of Pride Night and was an embarrassment for the Flyers and the organization. The Flyers did, however, win 5 2. Yeah, look, I think the less said on that, the better, quite frankly. It's just, it's not a good look in this day and age, but. I guess, you know, who are we to uh, have a go at people for their own belief systems? So, Stewie, NBA this time, we've purposely kind of tried to put the less time-sensitive stuff in part two in hopes that we can get part one uploaded on the Saturday night or Sunday morning. Unfortunately, we began the NBL with an RIP. We've got to do the same in the NBA. Now, he did live a little longer, and, and that's a good thing in the sense that he had a longer and fuller life. But rest in peace, Chris Ford the first player to ever hit an NBA three-pointer. I had not seen that. Yeah. So obviously coached the Celtics, coached the Bucks, had a pretty decent career as both a player and coach. And as I say, he did have a quite a long life, but uh, nonetheless still very sad. Yeah, geez. No, I mean, I, I've obviously, yeah, as you mentioned, I always think of him in terms of being the first guy to ever hit a three-pointer in league history. I think it was 1981. But yeah, just a, a, a really... Solid all-round player, pretty damn decent coach as well. And, yeah, has a, a legacy in the NBA that will obviously live on well past him. So, yeah, rest in peace indeed to Chris Ward and thoughts with their family and all of the people involved with all of those franchises. Now, Nath, before we get into, I guess, the main thing we're going to focus on in the NBA this week, you've got a few little bits and pieces. Yeah, I've got a few quick hits here. 
The San Antonio Spurs broke the all-time attendance record for a single game with 68,323 at the Alamo Dome. I've got a stat here of how many coaches have been in the league since the Spurs last played at the Alamo Dome. Do you want to have a guess? Oh, God. Well, when was the last time they played there? Like, 95? No, a bit later than that. It's been about 20-odd years. Oh, God. 326. It's actually a bit less. 209. Obviously, Greg Popovich. Yeah, I'm terrible. At, I'm, time. I'm, I'm terrible at estimating things. No, it, it, that was a hard one. I did throw you a curveball there. Did you get a chance to see the game? It was a good spectacle. No, I didn't. Uh, unfortunately, work's been ridiculous, and I've been travelling quite a bit for work as well. So I haven't really had a chance to watch too much stuff in the last week in that regard. To be honest, Stewie, you could be forgiven for not wanting to see Spurs games and maybe prioritising the better teams. But I've got to say, and we've talked about it before, and it's particularly the case when he's got his green hair. But I love watching Jeremy Sohan play, and he really is reminiscent of Dennis Rodman, isn't he? He is. He's absolutely brilliant. The, the same number, the short shorts. I mean, a ridiculous shooting style now, which is absolutely brilliant. I, I Yeah, dead set lovely guy. And I think that's another reason why I don't like watching the Spurs, because it makes me so depressed watching a team that actually knows how to be shit this year. <laughs> like it's... Uh, it's funny you mentioned the short shorts. My girlfriend was saying last night when we were watching the Wildcats and Kings game that it's not truly heritage round if they're still wearing the big baggy shorts. Yep. Amen. Bring back the Mike Ellis's. Very disappointed. How's this? Since Jeremy Sohan started the one-hand shooting technique, his shooting percentage at the free throw line has gone up 26%. I'd believe that. He was horrific with two hands. But isn't that great? He's actually got the balls to do something different. So over the years, obviously, there was the Rick Barry underhand shot. Everyone's too scared to do it. But good on him. And he's clearly a little bit different, a little bit left field. But yeah, love the guy. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. I'm glad that there are characters like that in the league. It's not just cookie cutter all the time. Now, Stewie, we've got to talk about your OKC Thunder and specifically Josh Giddy. Now, the Thunder have beaten the 76ers, the Mavs, and the Celtics very recently by a combined total of 63. Giddy's joined... <sighs> Stop Doncic. reminding me, Nathan. <laughs> Stop reminding me. <laughs> Great news for Josh Giddy, though. How well has he been playing? No sophomore slump for him. So he's joined Doncic, Giannis, LeBron, Siakam, Jokic, Anthony Towns, and Sabonis, who, by the way, is playing with a fractured wrist or thumb or whatever it is as the only players averaging at least 15, 7, and 5. So hats off to him in his second season. He's, what, 21 or something? Yeah, oh, look, he's absolutely been spectacular. And I have to laugh because I saw so many people on social media just getting stuck into him last season. Oh, why did we draft Giddy? We could have got someone else, whether it be like Kamingo or whatever. And it's like, well, look at him now. He's averaging 16, 8, and 6, playing for a team that is probably looking like an absolute super team of the next few years. And it's like, yeah, I mean, he was, what, yeah, he's just turned 20 in October. 20, yeah, I looked that up as well, yeah, October. So, yeah, there you go. So impressive. Insane. Now, speaking of young and old, did you see that Jabari Smith Jr. reminded LeBron James that he played with his dad? (laughs) I did see that, yeah. Did you see what LeBron did to him after that, though? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And LeBron actually has, this is a great stat news stat. LeBron has the most 45-point games by a 35-plus-year-old with five. Jordan had three. Now, StatMuse said one, everyone else. And Jamal Crawford replied to that and said, everyone else is me. The fuck? LOL. I don't actually think that's right either because Kobe Bryant had, well, Kobe had 60 in his last game and he was more than 35 when he retired. Oh, StatMuse. Well, we rely on them. There you go. All right. Not just you. 
No, it's just no. It's I. I don't know what the hell they did with that thing, but that was way off. Like as I say, Kobe probably would have had multiple games over that in that period of time because he was just shooting the ball like crazy. Yeah, high volume. Speaking of impressive mm. feats, players with thirty-five point triple doubles on ninety percent field goal shooting: Wilt and Jokic. That's it. Mm. That's the list. The Joker's the only player to have done it twice. He is leading the league in plus-minus plus three six seven. I love the guy. I always bang on about it, but. Jeez, maybe three MVPs in a row. I know it's only midway, but it's his to lose. No, it's too early to talk about it, Nathan. <laughs> Good on you, Stewie. I deserve that. No, no. Do you know what though? Like, it's getting harder and harder to see any sort of narrative where he doesn't win three in a row. Like, he's just he's that far ahead of everyone else. You know, regardless of all the numbers, the team success is there. The individual success is there. The efficiency is just oh my god, the guy's ridiculous. You're right. He ticks all three boxes. He ticks team success, eye test, and stats. All of them. He's just brilliant. I love to watch him. And every single team in the league had a chance to draft him and didn't. It's true. It's true. A couple of other things quickly. The Nuggets are 8-2 and two against the Clippers since Marcus Morris said it was the only reason because it was in the bubble that they beat them. <laughs> that was that choky series, of course. And have you seen any Walker Kessler footage, Stewie? Yeah, he just blocks everything. He's oh, an absolute beast. He is an absolute defensive beast. And it's not just the numbers. His timing, his anticipation, he's got the stuff he can't teach. He, he dropped a 20-20 on his old team, the Timberwolves. Yeah, I saw that. I can't remember who it was, but they were saying it was the first 20-20 by a rookie since 2014, and it was somebody fairly average. Okay, interesting. I've gone to the third umpire. I was right. Gorgie Jang. Ah, there you go. So there you go, March 20, 2014. How's this, Stewie? In the new year, Gobert is averaging, so basically in the month of January. So, okay, it's only been a few weeks, but it's still interesting. Gobert, 12, 10, and 1.1 blocks. Kessler, 10, 10, and 2.6 blocks. Yes, and how much are they paying Gobert versus what are they paying Walker Kessler? Uh, About 40 times more. (laughs) Yes. Per season. And just for those that have forgotten, Danny Ainge managed to turn Gobert and Mitchell into Markinen, Kessler, Sexton, Beasley, Akbaji, Vanderbilt, and seven first-round draft picks. Nice. It's insane. It is. The Sport Blokes are proud to announce a very special live event coming in the new year. Full Court Fitness and the Backlot Perth proudly present NBL Podcasts Live. Nathan Stewie will be joining the NBL Pocket Podcasters and superfan Nick Tan, and you should too. Come watch the Perth versus Tasmania game on the big screen and then stay for a live recording of the collaborative podcast. Wildcats member? Never fear. It's an away game, so you can join us too. So whether you're a Perthling or you're in the area on January 29, what are you waiting for? There are very limited seats available, so check out the link in the description and grab a ticket while you still can. John Morant is massive for us right now. John Morant is an incredible highlight machine, so he makes my life very easy. So, Nath, last week we saw John Morant throw down arguably the best dunk of his career. He splits his pick and roll, just cocked the ball back so far. It just it felt like my shoulders were going to pop out watching it. <laughs> a lot of people calling it the best dunk of all time. That's a claim I think you and I might sort of argue is a little bit much. But we wanted to kind of come up with our own personal top five. And before people start hitting us up on Twitter going, oh, you forgot such and such. These are our lists. They're not yours. You can send yours to us if you like, but they're our lists. 
Yeah, please. On the Twitter post for this episode, please post your favorites, post videos, post lists, do whatever you like. Absolutely. Now, look, I'll be honest with you, I haven't come up with a list. It's too hard on the, the notice was too short. I'd have to really think about it because how do you approach this? So if you're talking about kind of dunking on big guys, there's that MJ baseline on Ewing in 1991. There's Vince Carter on Alonso Morning. There's the Dominic Wilkins double pump on Bob Lanier. You know how much I love Dominic Wilkins. Otherwise, there's big guys dunking on small guys. So you've got Tom Chambers on Mark Jackson, which deserves extra weighting because he's a white guy and white men can't jump. You've got the DeAndre Jordan alley-oop on Brandon Knight. Then you've got kind of the gimmicky ones, or uh, gimmicky is not the right word. I don't know quite how else to describe it, but obviously blokes breaking rims. So I know you love Shaq in 93, pulling the whole <laughs> the whole thing down. That might even end up being number one on your list. Derek Rose, that one on Goran Dragic was huge. So, oh, there's so many. And there's the, obviously when we talked to Bo Estes, he mentioned that Blake Griffin won, which to me, I don't know, is that even a dunk? He kind of threw it down rather than dunked it. But anyway, long story short, Stewie, I haven't arrived at a top five, so I'm going to have to throw to you and I'm going to have to work out my criteria. This one's on notice, I think. Now, the whole segment's done, mate. You just listed my entire list. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> <laughs> you've, well, you've got you've got most of them, I will say. There's a couple in there that... But basically, for me, I mean, I've narrowed it down to, I guess, my five favorite dunks. And it's, I think that's probably the, the distinction we need to make. It's not even so much I'm saying these are the greatest dunks of all time. I'm saying these are my five favorite. And I've got a, a list of about nine honorable mentions as well, because there are quite a few in there. And, and do you know what? I could have put probably another 20 or 30 on the honorable mentions list of that many. That's the thing, isn't it, mate? If we had more time, we could actually really forensically, we could do top five putbacks. We could do top five small guys dunking on big guys. You could categorize it all, couldn't you? There's one that I haven't mentioned yet that I really love, and I'm going to actually wait to see if you bring it up. So uh, that's my entire short list minus one, which is one of my absolute favorites of all time. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, I do just want to quickly clarify, and this will come as absolutely no surprise to anyone who knows me, the Julius Irving rock the baby to sleep dunk over Michael Cooper will not be on my list because it's the most overrated dunk of all time. I knew that was going to happen and I nearly brought it up myself, but you beat me to the punch. I think one of the things about that dunk that's so impressive is the timing. So to get the rock right, to get his footwork right, it is a pretty dunk. I agree it is overrated, but he could have blown that very easily. It's a pretty, it is a nice dunk. Let me tell you why. Michael Cooper doesn't even contest the dunk. He, he basically drops his head down because he knows he's not going to get there. And it's a little baby windmill. That dunk can get fucked. It's not even his best dunk. <laughs> well, it's, Cooper it's does not at even least his jump. Best dunk. He at least jumped. He does the, kind of contest. The best dunk that, that he ever did was the dunk over Bill Walton in the 1977 finals. That was 10 times better for me. And his best play wasn't even a dunk, the behind-the-backboard little lay-in. Very, very true. So should we get into this, Nath? How are we going to do on. this? Yep, fire away, Stewie. Fire away. Right, so honourable mentions. We may as well start off with those. So one of the ones you mentioned, DeAndre Jordan versus Detroit. High pick and roll, and the Clippers actually had Jordan and Lamar Odom in that pick, so it was a pretty scrambled sort of play. Chris Paul comes off it, lobs it up to DeAndre Jordan, and he extends for a brutal dunk that sent Brandon Knight to the floor. Knight, I believe, went on to average from that point in his career about 2.7 nightmares per 24 hours. So, yeah, just a, a brutal dunk. So my second honourable mention is a guy who is your favourite dunker of all time, Dominique Wilkins. Now, you mentioned the baseline spin double clutcher over Bob Lanier, which is an absolute cracker. 
but it's not my favourite. My favourite of his was a game in the Boston Garden, and it's one of the first dunks I ever saw as a child basically getting into the NBA. And so Neek's fired up this 20-footer from the top of the key, and he's basically Mario double bounce to the rim, collects this miss, and just deposits this nasty one-hand putback over Larry Bird. And for me, the mixture of power and speed and agility and all of that is just what makes that such a, a beautiful dunk. Yeah, I agree with that. He had a few good ones on the Boston Celtics, actually. He had a really good one on Robert Parrish in Atlanta as well. He had a really nice one against Phoenix. I can't remember who the player is. But yeah, that one you mentioned is, I love a good tip dunk. That would be right up there for me. It's a really good one. I think the Phoenix guy might have been Alvin Adams. If it, is, it, is it a tall white guy? <laughs> it was a tall white guy, yes. Yeah, I'm 99.9% sure that was Alvin Adams. But uh, yeah, basically, you're, you're right. So many good ones against Boston. There was another really nice two-hander over Larry Bird. I remember the one over Robert Parrish as well, like power dribble and then brutal one-hander in his face. He just, yeah, he, he was good against Boston. And speaking of the double clutches, he had a really nice one against Mark Eaton too when he played for the Jazz. Mm, he did. You're right. Yeah, so many. I mean, you could make an entire top 50 just out of Dominique. So, oh, yeah, I very, love very watching him play. Love, love, love. Now, the next one I've got is LeBron James. So many great dunks, but again, against Boston, really key playoff game. There's less than two minutes left in the fourth quarter. They're up seven, looking for this knockout punch. And LeBron hits Paul Pierce and James Posey with this nasty in-and-out dribble and then unleashes one of the most powerful one-handed rim rockers you will ever see just to basically put the game away. Kevin Garnett didn't even jump. And the rumor has it that when Paul Pierce shit himself in the finals that time, he was actually thinking back to that dunk and how he feared for his life. <laughs> oh, genius. Genius. Unconfirmed. <laughs> unconfirmed. But it's, you know, it's, it's a fair chance. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. By the way, Miami were 40 or 40 from the line the other day. They were. Oh, well, actually, that was that against you guys? Who was that against? It was. Yeah. It was against us. Yeah. Bloody hell. It was brilliant. Impressive. Now, you're going to love this one, Nathan. Tim Duncan is getting a little shot on the honourable mentions. Oh. Now, this to me, this is a dunk that gets basically no recognition, and I don't understand why. So they're in Milwaukee. It's a baseline out-of-bounds play. Avery Johnson sets a back screen, and Sean Elliott throws this perfect lob to the front of the rim. Duncan is marginally late taking his first step, and he basically ends up grabbing it one-handed and flushing it at pretty much a 45-degree angle to the floor before landing. Do you remember this one? Oh, it's Stewie. That's a lovely dunk. I forgot about that one, actually. Tim Duncan, he it's, I mean, it's the story of his whole career. He doesn't get the respect he deserves in anything. He had a better career than Kobe, but people won't hear it. But he had some nice dunks, too, and that one was very nice, very tasty. It's one of my favorites. And it just, as I say, it always gets forgotten about just the, the angle that he caught that at and the finish was so impressive. Now, Nathan, it's so funny that you mentioned Kobe Bryant because he's the next one on the list. And it is a dunk against the Minnesota Timberwolves. Now, Kobe's obviously got a massive list of great dunks as long as your arm. But it was this up and under one handed smash he had in Minnesota that, quote, just sucked the gravity out of the target center. Great call by Kevin Harlan. It was the speed getting to his spot, the control to miss the defender, and then the power that he finished with was just sick. And then even better, if you watch the whole play, the ball movement from the Lakers to get Kobe that half a step open, is it's just incredible. And it was basically on KG and Rasho Nesterovic, so they're not short guys. No, not at all. Now, this one's a bit of a random one. Ricky Davis versus Philadelphia. It, this is 
arguably the best tip dunk I've ever seen. Now, Derek Coleman misses a turnaround jump shot and Davis times his run and jump from the top of the key where he basically half springboards off George Lynch's back, takes the rebound with his head right next to the ring and basically throws it down while he's still going up. Absolutely insane. Uh, Do you remember this one? (laughs) I forgot about this one, Stewie. I actually had to check it on YouTube, but lovely Charlotte Hornets courts back then, by the way. That's Yeah, that's a good highlight. I completely forgot about that one. I remember one where he dunked on a little guy where he basically jumped, not from the foul line, but from a step or two inside the foul line. Maybe Phoenix? Who was that? I can't remember. That was one. Yeah. That, that was one. That was Steve Nash when he played with Dallas. Ah, oh, okay. There you go. Maybe that's why I thought of Phoenix because of Steve Nash. There you go. Yeah, he basically finishes the dunk and then just looks straight at the camera and just yells out, "Oh shit!" Yeah, it was a nice, this is- nice one. Awesome. Now the next two you've actually mentioned. So Derek Rose against Phoenix, the Dragic baptism. It's oh amazing how high he gets up. So he takes his outlet pass, level with Dragic, one power dribble, and just basically levitates. And Dragic hits him as he goes up, which makes him go even higher. And he pretty much has to duck to avoid smashing his head off the backboard and the bloody moon as he throws it down two-handed. <laughs> Still, honestly, the saddest what-if in NBA history for me. When you see a dunk like that and you wonder how good he could have been if Tom Thibodeau wasn't a complete friggin' moron. Well, the saddest what if is Len Bias and always will be, I think. But that is a very Actually high true. one on the list. Yeah. True. Yeah. No, yeah, he was true. so bouncy. So good in college. Just, oh, man. It is sad. It is sad. He could have been one of the all-time. No, you're right, guys. actually. No, touche. Len Bias, yeah, you're right. Probably at the top. And then you've got, like, the Grant Hills and Penny Hardaways and all of that. So. And Bill Walton. Yeah. There's a few. There's a few. Yeah, true. True. Very, very true. Now, you mentioned Tom Chambers as well, the one against New York. And if you look closely when he's on the TV, you can actually still see the imprint of Tom Chambers' nutsack on Mark Jackson's chin. (laughs) No, look, in in all reality, he actually hit him in the throat with his knee. So he's up a bloody long way. Two-on-one fast break. Great pass from Kevin Johnson. Chambers basically hits it in stride, goes up, and just NBA Jam style, head height of the rim, just ruined Mark Jackson's chance of ever being a man again. And if I'm not mistaken, Tom Chambers, didn't he once win a, a All-Star Game MVP after being an injury replacement? So he wasn't even initially yeah. going to even be on the team. And then he made the team and won the MVP. It was that video that our mate had. was like 1983 or 84 or something. I believe it was 1988, actually. Oh, uh, was when he was. Oh, why did I think yeah. it was so early? Yeah. Sorry, no, it was 87. But that was the year that he was with the Seattle Supersonics. The game was in Seattle. He becomes the injury replacement and, yeah, goes on and dominates the game. Great player. A uh, cracking game. So, yeah, thanks for going to the third umpire on that one. All good, all good. I knew it was late 80s. I just couldn't remember how late. And the last little honourable mention I have to give, Gerald Green versus Houston. Two-on-one fast break. Marshawn Brooks throws this lob to Green. He catches and windmills the lob with his head above the rim. Absolutely disgusting dunk. You've hit it, Stewie. That's the one. That was my secret one that I hadn't mentioned. I fucking love that dunk. That would definitely be in my top five, I think. It is so pretty. Yeah, it's pretty much right on the outside looking in for me. I mean, just the control, how clean he catches it, throws it down with power. It's it's amazing. And he just makes it look so easy. Oh, effortless. So we'll get into my top five now, Nathan. I've got some that will probably be controversial here, but you know what? I don't care. What's your opinion, Shuri? You're allowed, you're entitled to it. Absolutely. So at number five, Sean Kemp. Now, everyone is going to hate on me for not including the list of blister here, but as we said, this is my list. For me, it's his dunk against the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden. It goes back to like 1990, 91. 
Now, he runs this pick and roll with Dana Barros at the top of the key, gets the pass in the middle of the keyway, and just goes up with this ridiculous double pump two-hand reverse. Brings it way down near his hip because you've got Kenny Walker flying out trying to be a hero and block the shot. And to me, this was the epitome of what Sean Kemp was as a dunker, that raw explosive power, the ability to finish around guys that might have been a little bit taller, an absolute freak of nature. And to me, it's between him and the next guy on my list for best in-game dunker of all time and no disrespect meant to Dominique or MJ. Oh, no. Well, I mean, there's several guys and he's definitely one of them. It's funny you mentioned that. I remember that one being in Seattle rather than the Garden. So there you go. But I agree. Like the Lister Blister, for me, I think the celebration is more iconic. Like he has way better dunks than that one. It's the celebration that makes people remember that one, I reckon. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, what makes the Lister Blister dunk so good is just the fact that he does the windmill completely one-handed like he doesn't bring the ball into that's two true. hands at any stage. yeah that's true like, he that's literally true. just brings it up off the hip one-handed like it's an amazing dunk but yeah for me the the double pump reverse against the knicks is that's my favorite dunk of his of all time now as i mentioned the next guy on my list is probably my favorite in-game dunker of all time it's vince carter and the dunk that i've actually got is the one against the indiana pacers so Really early days of Vince in Toronto. They're playing in Indiana. And for some reason, Larry Bird must have just hated Chris Mullen. And he gave literally the slowest, most unathletic guy in the league at the time the job on Vince. And Carter hits him with his tiny up fake. And before Mullen even lifts his hands up, VC's miles past him. He gets to the bucket. Dale Davis and Rick Smith are there. And he basically gives them a fuck you double pump reverse that just, he finishes it so nastily on the other side of the rim. He basically condemned the entire city of Indianapolis to relative mediocrity for the rest of eternity, really. (laughs) That is a tasty dunk, that one. It really is. I doubt that Mullen was defending him the whole game. I suspect it was a mismatch. I hope so, because if it is, that's really, really, really bad coaching, quite frankly. But you've got to love those baseline double pump reverse. Oh, very nice. Oh, it's, it's just like because of how fast he was going. He's not even like he's going past the rim as he throws it down. So it just makes it look way, way, way tougher than it actually is. I, I love that dunk. Absolutely brilliant. Now, number three is one that I think you're going to probably be like, oh, it's due. Not sure about this one. I am actually going with the Blake Griffin thrunk against OKC. Oh, it's due. Don't know about this one. How was that? <laughs> Honestly, yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. Like, yeah, call it a thrunk, call it an alien dunk, whatever. This was peak Blake Griffin. And at that time, pretty much no one in the league had any kind of success guarding him when he rolled to the bucket off those picks. I mean, you can ask Timofey Mozgov. He was another victim. But what I love about this was it was just that mixture of power and athleticism. Like, he's super high up on the dunk, pretty much level with the rim. He corkscrews. And just to still be able to reach out and throw it down with power, destroying Kendrick Perkins' career at the same time. Like, Perk did some pretty crappy stuff in his career, and his broadcasting is even worse, as we've spoken about. <laughs> that yes. play, that is the play that everyone knows about him. And, is, and it is. It's him being just straight baptized by Blake. I... I love that play. And I've got to say, in some ways, it's actually harder to throw it in rather than when you're touching the rim, isn't it? So it's very impressive. It is very impressive. Yeah. But yeah, not technically a dunk, I don't it, think. It is. No, no. no but that, and that's fair enough. And that's where it, it is an interesting little conversation where people might just go, yeah, that doesn't count as a dunk. But I I think anytime you're up there and you're throwing it down, that to me is a, a form of dunk anyway. Oh, I, I love it. It would have been so easy to miss that one with the power and, yeah, it's an impressive play. It's a magnificent play. 
It is. Now, one of the things that you mentioned at the start of this, number two, Shaquille O'Neal for me, you mentioned the type of dunk, but you got the wrong one. See, oh, it sounded okay. like you were mentioning the Phoenix Suns, the, the, when Donnery's basically gone the follow on the, the miss by Anthony Bowie, or it might have been Donald Royal, one of those guys anyway, and he's basically yeah, sort of snapped the, the stanch and then the backboard just folded down. The one I love more, though, is the one against New Jersey in the Meadowlands where he no, basically the tore the... Yeah. Oh, that was. The New Jersey okay, one. I think that was... I think that was like 94. Maybe that's what confused me. Oh, okay. Anyway, semantics. But yeah, basically tears the entire backboard from the stanchion over Dwayne Shinchius. Rest in peace, Dwayne. I honestly feel that this is a dunk that doesn't get close to the respect it deserves. Like this has never been done in the NBA and will likely never be done again. They had to change some of the rules. They had to literally changed the way that they strengthened the rings to make sure it didn't happen again because obviously the the lengthy delay in getting an entire new backboard. There's not many plays you see from opposing players that make a crowd lose their absolute shit. It was just, it was nuts. And then you get the commentary to gold as well. Like you've got the, the commentator saying, oh, he got hit with a shot clock. That's a violation. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I've gone to the third umpire, Stewie, April 23rd, 1993. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Jeez, wow. Would not, would not have picked that. Just the jerseys they were wearing didn't look like they were around back then. Would have been not too far off the playoffs, I guess, at that point. But um, do you remember when we used to go to the Wildcats and they'd always have issues with the height of the rim? And it was so annoying. That is one delay I would happily sit through after that dunk because you would just be marvelling the entire time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just, yeah, as I say, the sheer power... God, I can't believe that was 93. There you go. That, that blows my mind. It really does. But yeah, what a, an amazing, amazing dunk. It was 30 years ago, mate. And then to be forgiven. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, this is true. This is true. But uh, yeah, look, obviously the, the piece still a resistance. Number one, it's a dunk that I think most people have at number one. MJ's dunk against the Knicks. It has everything. Dribbles baseline into a double team of Charles Oakley and John Starks, who are both all defensive players during their career. Gives him that extended smitty, pretends to dribble back out to the perimeter and then just doubles back. And then basically off two steps, just puts Patrick Ewing back into the 1960s. Like, what more do you want in a dunk? It's the little hesitation dribble and the kind of, yeah, it's magnificent. Oh, it really is. I mean, as I say, like skill, power, grace, making Patrick Ewing look like shit, that has everything. And the, yeah, no, you're right. Great defenders and dunking on a big guy. It's a very good number one. It is. So, yeah, we obviously encourage anyone and everyone out there, please give us your favorite five. Let's not even call it the best five. Let's call it your favorite five. I'm open to any suggestions at all. Just basically, the, the one thing we ask is do not tell me my list is wrong because it's my list. That's all. And we've got to circle back. So where does Jar fit amongst all this, Chewy? Probably as an honorable mention. I, I can't fit him into that top five. Um, again, because of the whole favorite thing, it's an awesome dunk. I mean, to get the ball back that far and complete the dunk is very, very impressive. If I had to do maybe a top 10 or top 15, it would fit in there, I would think. But oh, it's hard to go past those five. They're, they're just, they're my favorite. Yeah, I think, I think I probably agree. I'd probably get it in the top 10, but I don't know if I'd get it in my top five. Yep. Awesome. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week goes actually back a few weeks now to the 17th of December. We've been holding on to this one for a few weeks until we actually had a need for it. Sadanand Meher from Agalpur High School in Odisha, India, 
another student basically throwing a javelin around and it's ended up going right through the side of his neck and throat. It is, oh, it's hard to look at the photo. You've seen the photo, yeah? It is horrific. Yeah, I, I have seen the photo. It's, it's uh, oh, yeah, not good. But the thing I find so fascinating about this is that if you can imagine copping a javelin through the side of the neck and you see footage of him just sitting on a chair waiting for the ambulance, really ho-hum, holding the javelin up himself. Everyone else is still just playing sports around this poor kid. And it's honestly, it's like nothing happened. And then eventually the ambulance rocks up and he just walks himself to it. Could you imagine the performance if an Aussie or an American teenager had that happen to them? It must be the adrenaline running through your body, hey? And the pain hasn't kicked in yet, maybe. I don't know, but it's weird. It's very weird. Oh, I just feel like any teenager from Australia would be just playing every card they possibly could. Like, oh, I don't think I can do any assignments for the rest of the year now because of this. Like, This kid just gets on with it. He was, do you know what? He was probably released from hospital that afternoon and had a half century and a fifer in a game. <laughs> I, was, I was about to say something similar. You beat me to the punch. <laughs> you, you, you could honestly, you could imagine him doing that. Like, he just... They're like, yep, stitch it up. I'm good. Give me the give me the new ball. I'll come in and <laughs> be throwing down like 130 kilometer an hour thunderbolts. Like, or bowl, just, bowl a yeah. 20 spell of off spin or something, 20 over spell. Of yeah, something exactly. Exactly. So, yes, incredibly brave display. So, to you, Sadanand Meher, all I can say is, Kuni Bahala Narak, bloody javelin hell. Bloody hell. Nath, before we move on to the cricket, you know how people will sometimes ask you, like, what's your superpower, Nath? What do you say to that? Uh, I normally say TV themes. I'm really good at spotting TV themes. So once my girlfriend and I were driving back from Rockingham, which is about an hour away, and she'd queued up all these TV themes thinking it would take us the whole drive home. And I was getting in within like a second. So an activity that she thought would take 25 minutes to half an hour took about five do you know what? I can confirm that, actually. For people that are listening, Nathan has an unreal ability to pick very obscure TV themes. I, I don't know how you do it. It is very, very impressive. I've got a weird brain that just sticks to music. I can literally, there have been occasions where I've heard a song for the first time on the drive into work, and I'm still singing it in my head at the end of the day, even though I've only heard it once. Wow. Unfortunately, okay, it didn't lead to any talent. So, you know, <laughs> fuck that. But anyway. <laughs> Listen, the reason I ask you that is that while we while we record, and we'll, we'll I'll maybe let people a little bit behind the curtains here. Quite often, we have to basically stop recording halfway through things. And my my superpower is that I can put on any game of basketball, and within fifteen seconds, a timeout will be called. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Not not if you're watching it from the tip. Oh well, no, no. If I it's, sorry, I sh- I'll, I'll clarify. Good call. So basically, I've just thrown on the Lakers and Grizzlies games. I just thought I'll get a bit of a fourth quarter bit of perspective, I guess, on how that game's going. And literally what I see is one missed three by the Lakers. The Basically, the Grizz go the other end, they score a layup, and a timeout is called. So pretty much my power is either turning a game on and it being in a timeout already, or within one play, it goes to a timeout. It's ridiculous. That's, I that's hate it. That's an interesting one. Yeah. All right. I'm going to have to test that with you next time. Oh, it's, it's hideous. Hopefully, you'll be enough to kind of change the energy of the world so that it doesn't happen. But when I'm on my own, ugh, it's a killer. Now, the Sydney test, it almost feels a lifetime away, doesn't it? But we may as well wrap it up quickly because we talked about the rest of the summer of cricket for the Aussie test team. 
Yeah. Is it safe to say that we've reached a point with Sydney where we have to move it around? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Uh, the question is where and when, but yeah, it's it's not a good track record. It's worse than a lot of English places as far as well. This, this is the this is the thing. So Sydney's now lost twenty six full days to rain, which is two more than Manchester, whose main export basically is rain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so six of the last nine SCG tests have ended in a draw. And on top of that, the Jay McGrath day was completely rained out. Like it get it's it's at a point now, and I understand the whole Gabba thing. We don't lose at the Gabba very often, but I think we've got to start with Sydney. Put it earlier in summer when they have less rain traditionally. They'll probably still find a way to rain something out. But I, I just think you've got to take your chances when historically the weather has been better. I mean, if we go into India, lose all of those, and somehow miss the World Test Championship because of it. How frustrating is that going to be? I know the World Test Championship isn't everything, but it's still nice to have. Well, that's cricket, isn't it, Shuey? That's cricket. But yes, it's something they'd be crazy not to at least investigate and think about and look at. And maybe they stick with the status quo, but they should definitely be at least thinking about it. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, you got you obviously you want to give certainly both teams every chance of getting a result, but certainly you want as a home team to give yourself the best possible chance, especially in a series like this, which we absolutely dominated from basically day one of the first test. So yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But look, in terms of the third test, did you get a chance to watch much of it? I watched a decent amount. Yeah. Aside from the rain, of course. Yeah. I did see a decent amount. It was kind of a carbon copy of the rest of the series though, wasn't it really? There was a lot of similarities. Yeah. Yeah. How's this? Elgar's average as captain is 20 less than when he's not captain. He was choked down leg side four times, I think, in the series. So you're right. There was a lot of kind of history repeating itself throughout the series. Well, there was. And I mean, I said it in the last episode where we spoke about the cricket, where it just, there was a lot of, yeah, really, really poor footwork, lack of technique, that sort of thing. And, yeah, you're right. Like, Elgar looks cooked. They've got nobody really in the middle order aside from Bavuma. I mean, to put it into perspective, Australia had six guys with scores of 79 or more in the series, including four Centurions. The top score in that entire series for the South Africans was a 65 from Bavuma. Well, plus there were some double Centurions. Oh, no, that includes the West Indies series too, doesn't it? But, yeah, no, that's you're right. And now, and now the South Africans only play, what, something like two tests in the next three years or something? There's that stat that people are bandying around. So, geez, it's not good it's, for South African not, cricket. It's not. Do you know the other thing, though, as well, that sums it up? Now, obviously, we've just had a very, very quick snapshot in terms of the batting. If you look at the bowling, I think that's where the the concern is because there was this talk of, oh, South Africa have you know, arguably the best, if not maybe the second best bowling lineup in the entire world. But if you look at this, okay, so I would say from the start – Rabada was was pretty good. Nokia was really good. But then Maharaj and Gidi and Jansen had no impact with the ball. And they just they couldn't build any pressure. So if you look at the four main Aussie quicks, Hazelwood economy rate of 2.03 for the series, Cummins 2.36, Boland 2.4, and Stark at three. And then you had Nathan Lyon at 2.54. Not one South African bowler had an economy rate under 3.22. Oh, it's, you're right. It's when it comes to building pressure, it's a big deal. Yeah, and Ngidi and Rabada were well over four. So you're just talking about these Aussie batters just being patient for maybe three or four balls in each over and knowing that there was going to be a loose one coming somewhere and just being able to put it away. And that's the difference. 
You know, you were getting very, very few loose balls from any of the Aussie bowlers at all. And the the complete flip side was happening with the South Africans. So, yeah, it was just – it was a really disappointing test. It was a disappointing South African team. And honestly, I'm, I'm just – yeah, I don't think we really gained much out of it. Speaking of disappointment, Usman will be a bit disappointed, won't he? Declared on 195 not. I want your thoughts on this because I'm really, really torn on this. What did? What are your thoughts? I'm not torn at all. They absolutely should have declared. Absolutely, no question. There was there was fuck all time left. There was tons of rain. I I have no problem with it at all. The result is way more important than one person. A not out score is still good. Yeah, I I it wasn't even a question for me. They I think they absolutely declared and they had to. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, look for me. I just. Part of me just looks at it and it's not, I'm not saying I'm like 50-50. I'm just saying there's a small part of me that's like, you know what, that's a pretty special milestone not many players get to. Ultimately, yes, as you say, team trumps individual and the two or three overs, it might have been something that uh, that, that would have got a result. But as it turns out, there was just never enough time. And unfortunately, uh, we, we might have potentially had some really interesting trivia that could have been maybe the first time that four individuals in one team had had a double ton in the same summer. That would have been amazing. It really would have. Based on the amount of overs South Africa were managing to face and getting bowled out for in their previous several tests, we did have enough time overwise. You know, now obviously there was the rain and this, that and the other. So no, I think it was the right call. But yes, you're right. That would have been incredible. And obviously with the benefit of hindsight, of course you let him get the 200 because it was a draw in the end. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard. I, I'm with you. Like, I agree. Yes, you have to declare then, but it's just, oh, it's such a shame. It really is. Now, speaking of those double tons, it was weird that Davey Warner was player of the series, basically on the back of one innings. My understanding is it was a flaw in the voting system. So rather than like a holistic vote at the end, they tallied up votes from across the three matches. And so that's why it ended up being him. But it probably should have been Paddy Cummins. Look, I'm going to take a very gentle approach on this. It's a fucking disgrace. <laughs> Absolute fucking disgrace. Is he the player of the second test? Absolutely. But across that whole series, he had, he made that one score. Yes, it's a 200, but every other innings was absolute shit. He made 13 more runs in the other three. I oh, know, it's ridiculous. Like, it's just, it's insane. See, you've given Pat Cummins. For me, Travis Head was the man of the series, and I'll tell you why. On that really bouncy Brisbane green top in the first match of the series, he comes in at three for 27 and scores a match-winning 92. Puts on 117 for the fourth wicket with Steve Smith when no one else could really get in. And all of a sudden, they go from being in a spot of bother chasing down, well, I mean, what did South Africa make? 154 or so, 152, sorry. And instead of, like, if he comes in and maybe makes five and they're four for 40, that series could look very, very different. And on top of that, he made the same amount of runs as David Warner without a double ton to prop it up. He did it at a strike rate of over 100. The only other person in the series above 77 was Nathan Lyon, who's a slogger. He had the most 50s, the most fours, equal most sixes. And just for me, that innings in Brisbane was the defining moment of the series. I'd have no problems with him winning it. You're right. He was the match winner there. And... He, he looked incredibly good this summer. I'm very hopeful for both the Test and the one-day World Cup for Travis Head. So, yeah, no, no, I'd have absolutely no problem at all if he'd been awarded Man of the Series. I mean, Cummins was excellent. I'd probably give him second place. I guess I kind of went with Cummins because of what a lot of the experts were saying and kind of, like you say, keeping that economy rate down, keeping the pressure on, bowling 
really good line and length consistently, being really just, yeah, just, just being a really good pro and never letting the batting team have any kind of freedom. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. So obviously the tour of India is not too far off and Todd Murphy has joined a long list of spinners that have been previously uncapped to be picked. So Brad Hogg, Gavin Robertson, Nathan Horitz, Jason Crazier, Mitchell Swepson, who's fallen out of favour. So Todd Murphy's an interesting one and there's a lot of people singing his praises. And we'll come back to the India tour. We might even have to get Woody on again to maybe talk about that, maybe at the end of the series or something. We'll work something out. But speaking of tours... Australia cancelled a tour of Afghanistan. And, well, Rashid Khan's not happy about it, is he? Yeah, I mean, this absolutely sucks. Like, I feel so horrible for the Afghan players and the non-Taliban community in Afghanistan. I'm, I'm sure they're dying for cricket, especially against quality opposition. That's the big thing. I understand why Cricket Australia feels this need to, I guess, support the plight of women in Afghanistan. Like, they've lost their basic human rights, driving, education, sport, all that sort of stuff. I guess my big question to you is, do you think there was another option in terms of making a stand against the treatment of women apart from cancelling the entire tour? It's interesting, isn't it? So I might bring up this tweet from Dan Liebke. Australia cancelling their tour of Afghanistan for ethical reasons would have probably been more impactful if they didn't have such a long track record of cancelling tours to and from smaller cricketing nations for no legitimate reason whatsoever. So people are saying... Well, hold on. You played Afghanistan in the T20 World Cup. It didn't seem to be an issue then. Yeah, spot on. Absolutely. Like, there's way more important. I mean, if look at what we've basically done as an entire world of sport, trying to support the fight against racism by taking a knee. Why couldn't they just do something similar to that instead of making this sort of knee-jerk reaction and trying to basically deliver this blanket middle finger to the Taliban as the only option? I, I just I don't think it was necessary. And, I mean, you mentioned Rashid Khan. Obviously, he's come out and said he might need to rethink his future in the Big Bash, which was another knee-jerk reaction of of sorts, I guess. And you can't blame him for supporting his national side. And it's unfortunate. I'm sure you probably saw the keyboard warriors saying, oh, don't let the door hit you on the way out, basically. It's politics and sport, man. They just don't mix. Well, it's tricky, though, because this is politics. Like, human rights, to me, is above politics. Politics is a bit more of the dirtier stuff, the the personalities and and other issues. But basic human rights are they're basic human rights. And it's a big deal. Mm. And it's really interesting. So I've done a bit of research on this. I listened to the the Grandstand Cricketer podcast and I've listened to a few different people talk about this. And and going back to what you said before, so the captain of the team, Hashmat Shahidi, he tweeted and I quote Fans and people of Afghanistan who have suffered immensely due to conflict for the past 42 years don't want politics brought into sports. Cricket is the most loved sport in the country and one of the main sources of happiness. And this is the problem, isn't it? This is constantly the, I guess, tightrope we walk because sport really is a great way of escaping from the horrors of the world and wherever you may live and whatever you may be dealing with at any given situation. And it is a really good way to find sometimes fleeting and brief moments of happiness. And so it's really tricky because I do feel for the fans. I do feel for the players. I do feel for the sport in general in that country. But at the end of the day, I feel for the women. And it's a hard country to be in for them. And they don't have the same rights as men. And they are second-class citizens, basically. What's really interesting, so I heard Ed Cowan on the Grandstand podcast talking about how one of, I guess, the kind of pillars of being a fully ICC cricket sanctioned nation 
is having both the men's and women's team. And Afghanistan kind of, because of the environment there with the Taliban, I guess you call it political environment, but it's basically a dictatorship. Uh, not that that can't be political, but they're the only country that aren't having to comply with this female team thing. So, so they're kind of getting special treatment and they have had special treatment for many years in that regard. So again, it's really tough because I do think it's a wonderful thing for the people and it's a shame, but you've got to take a stand somewhere, don't you? And it was really interesting to hear Ed Cowan say, why are Australia having to do this? This should be the ICC. The ICC should be putting their foot down a little bit more. So, yeah, it's fraught, mm. isn't it? It is. It is. And honestly, I could have sat back and listened to you go for hours on that. That's like, it's so interesting. Yeah, the way you put that. And you're right. Like, it is, it's above politics. You're right. It is, uh, it, it is human rights. And it's obviously, it's disappointing that we live in a world where women and, you know, young women in particular as well don't seem to feel like they've got a future because they can't do the things that, they've got the brains for or the the ability to be good at it it is it's frustrating and i do feel for the afghan players i mean how are they ever going to get better or get to a a level where they can compete with the top nations in the world if they're not getting a chance to play cricket it's tough that's right yep and that's the catch 22 there's no magic bullet for this one there's not so i've been watching a little bit more of the bbl stewie i don't know about you steve smith had a ton which was very impressive but there's also been some more controversy we've already talked about the man cads and the catching now it's the roof this is even worse quite frankly <laughs> at least at least the man cad you can kind of make an argument either way but we've got to talk about this so not once but twice in the melbourne derby Melbourne Stars players hit sixes that hit the roof of the stadium, of Etihad Stadium or Marvel Stadium or whoever the fuck's sponsoring it right now. Section 19.7.1 of the stadium roof subsection states, if the ball having been struck by the bat hits any part of the stadium roof structure, retractable or fixed, a boundary six will be scored. I honestly don't understand this rule. Like any other ground in Australia, both of those deliveries would have likely been out or at least given a catching chance to the team. But they're saying if you sky one too much or top edge it too high and it hits the roof, it's six. So technically you can hit a six that goes zero metres. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I know we don't like giving umpires discretion, but surely the wise situation here is to give the umpire discretion where they can say, yep, I'm confident that that trajectory would have meant it was a six or nope, I'm not confident that was a six. Dead ball, re-bowl it. Yeah, we'll just call it a dead ball in general. I I just don't understand. The the reason that I find it really frustrating, though, is that contextually it can cause massive issues. And and I've kind of had a look back at that game, and it's not the best example, but I'll kind of run you through it. So the Stars are chasing 163 in this one. It's not a massive total, but it's certainly a total that you still need to go out and get. And they ultimately lost the game by six. At the point of the second one of these, the Stars needed 37 off 30. Bo Webster skies one. It literally was going straight up in the air. It was one of these ones that would have been less than a 10-metre six in the end and probably would have been caught just off the wicket. And basically, if the ball had been dropped, you're looking at maybe one run. But if the Stars hadn't choked and instead won that match, that's effectively 12 runs that have been gifted to them. And the Renegades are currently in a five-way battle for one of the last two spots in the top four. So if they lose that match, instead of being third right now, they're sitting fifth and they're being punished basically for bowling too well. Yep. No, you're right. It's a big deal. 12 runs is not nothing in a chase. 
Well, it's huge. I mean, yep. like if you're talking about a, a chase of 163, it's like what seven percent of what they need. When instead, it probably would have been two wickets. It's yep. crazy. It honestly. is crazy. I, I, it's just another one that's bizarre. By the way, the, the T20. So obviously, there's been a bit of a mass exodus of players going on to other competitions. Did you know that the International League T20 in the UAE hasn't been accorded official T20 ICC sanctioned status? So the stats won't count. Interesting. Yeah, so Rick Finlay, I saw that one on Twitter. So we know how much stats are important to cricket. I wonder how many players I got. Oh, the money is so obscene that they'd probably still play, but they'll be pissed that their stats don't count. Oh, you would be. It'd be, it'd be absolutely bloody rovable. That's, that's disappointing. Couple of quick hits, Stewie. Our thoughts are for Rishabh Pant. He's going to be out of the game for a while after a horrible car accident. I can't remember if we talked about that last time or not, but our thoughts are with him. He's a very exciting player, and we hope he's back to full fitness and he's cracking sixes again very soon in all formats of the game. Oh, absolutely. It's it's scary when you see these sorts of things. I mean, look, we don't know what happened, obviously. All I know is there was a crash on some form of motorway. His car was on fire and a couple of amazing citizens managed to pull him out before the entire car was just engulfed in flames. And that's, uh, yeah, look, it's not the sort of driving we want to see from Rishabh Bhatt. We'd rather see him out on the uh, on the field doing doing great things. Cover drive, yeah, exactly. And they're going yes. all right without him. India beat Sri Lanka by 317 runs the other day. The next best is New Zealand over Ireland by 290. So they smashed that record, absolutely smashed it. To be fair, mate, you and I could go on there and beat Sri Lanka right now. <laughs> They're not going spectacularly well. How's this? Ben no. from Wisdom, Ben Gardner. Ishan Kishan became the youngest ever player to make a men's ODI double century four games ago, and India left him out for the next match. His replacement, Shubman Gill, has now also become the youngest player to make a men's ODI double century, so expect him to get the chop soon too. Do you know Ishan Keshian actually has the record for the most rhyming first and surname? <laughs> I know you love Ishan Kishan. Yeah, with a, the hundred percent rhyming record is the uh, it's the highest percentage in Test cricket and ODI cricket ever. And then finally, for me, oh, sure. one more. We talked about the man cad. There's a bit of controversy. Some people in the family are saying no, we like it, call it the man cad, and other people in the family are saying no, we don't want it to be called the man cad. Whatever. Anyway, Stuart Broad tweeted never. I run too far to bowl the ball to even consider it. I like people getting out properly, to which one uh, very clever user immediately responded, I guess this wasn't properly out then, showing the image from the ashes that I know you love talking about, Stewie, where he is very clearly giving a very thick edge. I still can't believe to this day that that wasn't given out. Pretty bad. Pretty bloody bad. Stewie, you know what that music means. Final thoughts time. Well, I might have potentially reversed the curse I spoke about earlier. I just chucked on the Grizzlies and the Lakers, and I reckon I got to maybe 30 seconds before they called a timeout, but better than nothing. Very good. Great effort. So, obviously, look, a lot of great dunks we spoke about today. So much amazing stuff going on. Hopefully, we'll get some cricket back on the screen sometime fairly soon. And if you're in Perth next Sunday, get a ticket while you still can. There's only a handful left. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportplex.